2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
3: Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Honey and Coal. I'm Sarit Packer. My husband Itamar Solovich and I run Honey and Coal, Honey and Smoke and now Honey and Spice. We cook all the time. We cook a lot of Middle Eastern food, but we get inspired by people in the industry everywhere. And in the so we get a chance to talk to some of those people. We invite them over. We have a chat. We cook their food. We enjoy time together. We have some guests and we ask them lots of questions. Uh, hope you enjoy the podcast.
2: And it's
3: Today we're joined by the lovely Samin Nosrat. She's just written a book called Salt, Fat, Acid and Heat. And it is an excellent book about mastering the elements of good cooking. It's so intriguing. It's interesting for a professional chef, but also really informative and inspiring for someone that's just learning how to cook, trying to understand the basics of what these kind of elements have in food, how to balance your dishes, how to create amazing food. She's such an eloquent speaker, so boisterous, full of energy, and we've had the most amazing night. Welcome everyone to The Today we have a huge pleasure in talking to Samina Nassrat and she has written this book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Now we heard about this book and we were a bit, Meh, we're chefs, we know everything, we're not gonna, we don't need this, we don't need to read it, it's not interesting and we were like, oh it's got drawings, we don't need any of this stuff. We sat at home, we started opening it and it is so interesting. It's full of insights, it's full of information, it's Interesting, engaging, really, really exciting to read. And so new and fresh. So a big hand of applause. (laughs) So we're going to go back to the start. How did all of this happen?
0: Um, Well, first I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My family moved to California in the late 1970s from Iran. And my... um, I always say my, and my mom is an exquisite, extraordinary cook, so I grew up eating the most delicious Persian food, which overlaps quite a lot with your cooking, and um, I always say she, you know, this is something I thought was unique to our family, and later I realized was pretty much just like a universal immigrant thing, was in our family the highest compliment for something, like an ingredient, was that it tasted like Iran. You know, like if she found the clementines that tasted the right kind of sour or the lamb that had the nice gamey taste, it tasted like Iran. And later I realized it's because like for her, cooking was a way to connect with the place like she could never return to. And so and I've met many Iranian immigrants who have this same sort of obsession for like they will go to any length to find the right ingredient, you know? So we would drive, I would say my brothers and I spent 40% of our childhood in the backseat of the Volvo station wagon. Chasing driving, barbaries. yeah, totally. <laughs> like all over Southern California, we would drive two hours for fresh bread straight from the oven or the right feta cheese or whatever. And so um, that sort of singular pursuit of taste, I think was built into me, but I didn't necessarily know. I mean, I liked eating, but cooking wasn't something that I was interested in particularly, except desserts because my mom, was she didn't let us eat sweets. And so um, sometimes, if we were like, she was like, oh, if you want it, you have to make it yourself. So that was the only reason I ever went in there. I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do this stuff. But um, there is a part. Yeah. You yeah. You, you <laughs> and there were a lot of the mistakes. Sugar. Yeah, a, yeah. Lot, <laughs> a lot of mistakes. And so she, um, so that was sort of that. And I went to university in Northern California, in Berkeley, to write because I wanted to be a poet. And I was an English major studying literature. I did a year abroad here in London studying Shakespeare. And then um, I had a boyfriend who wanted, who was from the Bay Area, from San Francisco. And he, we really bonded over eating over, and he showed me all of his favorite, like his favorite burrito, his favorite pizza, all the things. And he really wanted to eat at this restaurant called Chez Panisse in Berkeley which was a really famous restaurant, but I grew up eating Persian food and tacos. So like, I didn't have a relationship to fine dining or famous restaurants. I didn't even, it didn't even, the idea of paying a hundred dollars for dinner, I was like, why would you do that? (laughs) And so, and so, um, but we saved our money for seven months. We saved $220. And we went there and it really blew my mind. It was such an extraordinary, exquisite experience to eat at this restaurant and feel so cared for. And every detail had been thought about and the flower arrangement was so beautiful and the lights were like copper and warm and the butter came in this little, ramekin and I had never seen butter in a ramekin like that before and I was like I think they churned it in the back you know later I became a busser and I found out they did not churn it in the back a busser has to painstakingly put it in there in the perfect way but um it was just really amazing and the dessert was chocolate souffle and the server brought it and she said have you ever had souffle before and I said no show me what to do and she said you have to poke a hole in it and pour the sauce in so every bite has sauce so I said, okay. So I did it. And she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's good. I was like, it's really good. But it would be better if you had a glass of cold milk because it was like a warm chocolate thing and cold milk. And so, and so um, I had no idea how incredibly rude that was. <laughs> and also like really betrayed my unsophistication because like to have milk, you know, like in fine dining and in Europe, like to drink milk after 10 a.m. is like totally uncouth. And so, like, I was just like, here I am, 19-year-old person who knows nothing. <laughs> so she was kind of charmed, and she brought me milk, and she also brought us dessert wine to show us the refined accompaniment. Well, you and should so, be. Yes. <laughs> and so then um, I ha- we had it, and it was just a really, like, I felt so cared for, and and it really, it was just charming. And so... I immediately wrote a letter and made my resume and I always had jobs while I was in school. And so I brought the letter there a little while later and they said, oh, you have to bring it to the floor manager. So they sent me around the corner to her office and she opened the door and it was the souffle lady. Mm -hmm. And so we recognized each other. And I also think she was probably like pretty desperate. So she was like, (laughs) do you want to start tomorrow? And I was like, okay. Oh, sorry. So I started the next day bussing tables. And, you know, in the meantime, I had figured out that this place was this American institution by then. I, the, my first day was the 28th birthday of the restaurant. It had already been there for so long, which is amazing, yeah, which is an incredible lifespan for a restaurant. Yeah. And that was almost 20 years ago. I mean, it's almost been there 50 years now. And so it's um it was a machine by then and it was everything was so smooth and everyone was so professional and knew exactly like what they were supposed to be doing and there was a way to tie the trash bag and there was a way to pour the water and and so my first task was to come. They walked me through the kitchen, which is so beautiful and pristine. And the cooks like all wearing their gleaming white coats. And they look at you and like, it's like when they smile. It was like almost like a cartoon where they go ding, like the teeth are just like gleaming. It was just over the top <laughs> perfection, you know. And they're like, OK, here now your first job is to vacuum the floor. And they pull out this vacuum that's like this 50 foot cord that plugs into the central like vacuuming thing and I was like even the vacuum here is amazing like I had never <laughs> like <laughs> and then I was like I just can't believe they're letting me vacuum the floor of Japanese. <laughs> so I like from the first day it was I was like obsc- you know I just wanted to do my, and I'm an immigrant kid so like I just want to do my best, you know, and overachieve. And so I just wanted to show them everything I could do, but I didn't actually know how to do anything. And um, I immediately fell in love with food and cooking there. And so I wanted, I saw how the cooks were treated. They were the rock stars of the place. And I was like, maybe when I graduate college, I can't just be a poet and make a living doing that. So maybe I need a skill. And it sort of was just the timing and the play, everything just sort of came together. So I begged them to teach me how to cook and, You know, reluctantly, they eventually let me in the the kitchen, yeah. yeah.
3: (laughs) And then in your book, there's a lot of stories that revolve around you learning and discovering what happens to food. So how a chef will show you to add a bit of vinegar to pop a flavor or add more salt to pop everything. So... What was the most useful things that you learned there as in cooking skills?
0: Yeah, well, so the menu there changes every single day. So it was really hard for me because my only conception of cooking up to that point had been, I mean, watching my mom cook, which she never really used cookbooks, but it was stuff she'd been doing her whole life. But then the idea of all these things I'd never heard of, it was all cookbooks. They gave me a stack of cookbooks this high and said, go home and read this and learn this. And I'd come in and one day we were making, you know, paella and the next day bouillabaisse and the next day bolognese sauce. And so just foods from and sometimes we made couscous and like foods really from all over, you know, the Mediterranean and sometimes even farther And they never looked at recipes. And so I was so confused how they knew what they were doing. I felt like I'd never be able to keep up. I mean, the year I started working there, they won um, Best Restaurant in America by Gourmet Magazine. So this was like very high caliber people. And I couldn't tell the difference between parsley and coriander. So like just to set the stage for you. And so I, I, I had to, I mean, it was, I had a headache. I felt bad all the time. I felt like I'd never catch up. And then eventually I started to see how they were doing. And one thing we always did every day was taste. We tasted everything incessantly and we talked about it. I mean, at first I was like, what are these people even like, what are these words they're saying? I didn't, it didn't make sense. And I was really timid. I would never share my opinion. I would taste it and listen to what they were saying. And over, I mean, almost always the most common comment was it needed more salt. And sometimes the salt came from salt and other times it came from Parmesan cheese or, I don't know, pecorino with saltier. So that would be like, be careful with the pecorino, it's saltier. And so I was like, OK, salt is this thing we're always adjusting for, you know, and you olive oil. There was always like olive oil is the international sauce of Chez Panisse, like on top of everything. And at the base of everything, it's the flavor of the food. And I had never really understood what good olive oil or bad olive oil was or why sometimes we used butter. And if I cooked the onions in olive oil that time, I got in trouble. So there was just learning about how fat was used and all acid. I never understood what does it mean like acid? It's such a clinical word, you yeah. know. And um, but then they would always say, and this needs to be a little brighter. These words, I had no-. it's like wine tasting when you don't know anything. And there's all these terms or like ways people are like cherry. Oak, you know, that smells like feet or whatever. And like, <laughs> you're like, what are you talking about? Right. And yeah. so, yeah, I just had to sort of stand there. And then eventually I'd be like, I'd think to myself, like, this needs a little more acid. And then someone would say, that needs a little more acid. I'd be like, okay, I'm getting it. So I think it was the very intentional tasting and developing my palate for salt and fat and acid that really was at the heart of it. And then just, I had so much fear cooking anything like there. They have a hearth there, so half the stuff is cooked in the hearth or in the wood oven upstairs, and then there's the regular ovens and the regular stove. And so, if we ran out of space on the stove, I remember one time there wasn't enough burners, so they were like, "Oh, you have to go cook your soup over the fire." I was like, "How on earth am I going to cook soup over a fire?" Like, it just, I just, I was like, if I can't turn it up or down, how do I control the fire? And they're like, "Well, when you cook it over the stove, you like let it simmer till the onions are soft. Like, do the same thing over the fire." So. I just had to learn. Eventually, I just had to learn to be fearless, really, like because I was there was so much fear in it for me. And what's interesting, I was telling someone today, like, I think what makes me a good teacher or what I always try to tune into when I'm teaching people is remembering that fear and remembering the feeling when I didn't know anything because it's so overwhelming and you can feel so like, how does everybody else know how to make food taste good? And I don't. So remembering that and then remembering the light bulb moments and trying to tell those stories is how I feel like that's how I teach and it seems to work with people. So yeah. So how do you move on from a place? I mean, because yeah. it is an institution. I it mean, is an institution. And I didn't really... Everything in my life... Lo- so many... I'm a two... I'm a, I am ai exist on two ends of insanity spectrum. So one is like... I have a crazy manifestation journal where I write all of my goals and I'm so ambitious and I want to achieve this, this, and this, and this. And then on the other hand, like all this insane things just happen, like like serendipity. I eat at this restaurant and I write this letter and there's a souffle and the lady answers the thing and I end up there. And so um, when I left Chez Panisse, I didn't mean to leave there permanently, but I really wanted to go to Italy. I'd always been obsessed with Italy. I feel like there's, you know, you have... Proof here, physical proof, but I feel like there's a there, well, the there's, so, <laughs> yeah. there's an amazing sort of um, like overlap culturally between Iran and America. There's, we're like both like hot-blooded who love food (laughs) and so there's there was a way where I felt very at home in Italy and I visited once and I really wanted to go back and even as a cook I felt more drawn to the more relaxed nature of Italian cooking than French cooking and so um i there was a chef who came into our restaurant to do a book signing from italy and i begged her to, to let me come so i went and worked with her in florence and then i loved it so much i stayed for about two years you speak Just, it now um, now i do yes oh. yeah <laughs> so um so, so the restaurant? it was called zibibo it's gone now her name is benedetta vitali she is extraordinary she and her husband fabio Picchi opened a restaurant in Florence called Cibreo, which is an institution in Florence. And um, they split up maybe 19, in the late 90s. And so she she opened a little restaurant on the outskirts of town called Zibibo where she wanted to explore her own like Sicilian heritage and Sicilian cooking. And so, I mean, she made a lot of the Tuscan hits too, but it was really nice for me because even then... I was still so young. I'd only been cooking like about two years by the time I went to her. I didn't speak Italian when I went. I just knew all of the ways in which I could flounder and fail. And kitchens can be so macho. And um, I just knew that and Itali- Italy can be so macho. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, I will. Only, I just knew I'd only survive if I went to a woman's kitchen. And she it was a little thing. She had kids about my age. She really took me in. And um, by the end of it, I was speaking Italian and like doing everything. So I learned so much and so much of what I saw there just built upon what I had learned at Chez Panisse and like the same lessons, the same way of using salt, the same way of using olive oil. And so, and then, you know, from there I I went and visited friends in Pakistan. Same thing I saw on the street side cooking, like the guy making the kebabs, same thing, he builds the fire and cooks over it. So I was like, this really is universal. So by the time I came back to Berkeley, the chef who had been my mentor, opened, had left Chez Panisse to open his own restaurant. And it was an Italian restaurant. So I was like, I got to go there. <laughs> and then eventually I was running that place. And they, that place lasted five years. It was called Ecolo. And when it closed in 2009, I was like, okay, this is my chance to really write and, and stop working in re-. restaurants. Didn't agree with me so much. It's just, a I admire you guys so much, but it's physically so demanding. I have a crazy hot temper and like, it was not, I've had to go to a lot of therapy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, but this is, one
3: of my next questions is about this and women in the kitchen and it's not an easy thing for a woman to find herself in the kitchen. I don't know what America is like. I know what here is like, what Israel is like, but, T- tell me a bit about, like, yeah. That I place. do
0: feel very lucky in a lot of ways because Shape Panisse is, you know, like, started by a woman, and, ser- like, none of the honey business would have ever um, been, like, tolerated there. So I didn't really, it wasn't so much any sort of harassment that I ever experienced, and in be- in Italy, I worked for Benedetta, and same thing, like, I came back and worked in a kitchen where that wasn't allowed, but I was also maybe, I, by the time I was in charge, I was 24, 25, and I was a brown woman in charge of mostly white men, who m- many of whom were older than me, and just because you're good at something doesn't necessarily mean you're a good manager of people doing that thing, and I had never been taught to be a manager, and so I just resorted to my same, like, passive aggressive, angry, you know, and I'm not a yeller exactly, but like, I just, there's a way where like, if I can't, if someone's doing something wrong, and I'm like, you're not doing it right, I'll just, I can't look at you in the eyes anymore, like, uh, (laughs) so I would just not ever look people in the eyes, yeah, passive aggressive can be (laughs) worse than than actually (laughs) (laughs) shouting and letting it out, because you don't know where you stand, so I'm not like, proud of exactly how I acted, I mean, I had a lot of pressure on my shoulders, and I, I don't think I was the worst employer of all time, but, um. I knew I wasn't becoming a person. I certainly wasn't happy and I wasn't becoming like the person I wanted to be for the rest of my life. And I also think in retrospect, I'm being a lot harder on myself because there were a lot of good memories and people who are so grateful to the way that I taught them. But it wasn't a way that you know, I had a lot of cortisol and like adrenaline in my body. It was bad. So, (laughs) and it's just the hardest possible job. And like, there's always a problem. The toilet's always breaking. Someone's quitting. You have to train the next person. Like, It's just, it's endless. And it wasn't even mine. Like I was giving everything I had to something that wasn't even mine. So, I knew I wanted to write. I've never wanted to have only cooking or only writing. Like I and I I needed a break from that and I kind of wanted to redefine professional cooking and what it could mean to be a professional cook outside of a restaurant, which I feel like I'm still doing cuz when I meet people and I say, "Oh, I'm a cook," they're like, "Where do you what restaurant do you work at?" And I still have to redefine, you know, re-explain that. So, it's interesting. So,
3: you started writing
0: so in tw- in 2006 I um um the writer Michael Pollan came into the restaurant and I saw his name in the reservation book so I wrote a note to him you saying sweating. yeah yeah well I wasn't going to be there for dinner so I wrote a note to him saying like oh I'm your number one fan I've read all your stuff and I would love to come take a class with you because he was teaching at the graduate school of journalism so he um The letters are becoming a theme in my life, like remarkably. So the server gave him the card. And then three weeks later, he wrote me back and he said, hey, you should come in, talk to me at office hours. And so I went in and I said, oh, can I take your class? I really want to take your class. He said, no, you can't take my class. (laughs) And so because it's a really small class and like the class is for the paying students and you are not a paying student. But if you want, you can come to the first day of class. There's always one spot, you know, and like I let somebody in. But you're at the very end of a very long list of a priority list. So I went in and there were 200 people there for the one seat. And I was like, this isn't going to happen. And we had to write our reason why we want to take the class on an index card. So I wrote it and I went home and I was like, well, that's not going to happen. And I told my friend who is a graduate student. She's like, "Don't you know anything about academia? Like academics? What you need to do is write him an email right now and tell him hey, like he will be like regret not like letting, you know, like you have to explain why he has to let you in." So I was like, I could never tell Michael Pollan why he needs to let me in. And she was like, just do it. So I did. And he wrote back. He was like, okay. So (laughs) I was like, I just had to ask one more time. (laughs) So then I went in this class and there were maybe 12 of us. And it was my, you know, by now I had this amazing cooking community. And this was my introduction to having like a journalistic and writing community and all of the people in that class like have gone on to have incredible careers in journalism and have been mentors to me. And Michael took me under his wing and he he really supported me. And um, eventually he started researching a book about cooking and the cu- culture of cooking and like human culture and cooking. And so he asked me to teach him how to cook. And so I would go to his house and I would teach him how to cook. And every week I'd bring an idea for a book. I'd be like, how about, what if I wrote a book about, I don't know, this gutter punk who I taught to cook? Like, it'll be an amazing memoir. He was like, that sounds horrible. like yeah. <laughs> you know." And so eventually and like he was like, what's the deal? You're always obsessed. Like when we're cooking in these lessons with these four things like that should be your book. And I was like, that book will be really hard to write. I can't do it. Plus, it won't have photos. It needs to have, illustri- like, it can't be photographed because it's too theoretical. And I want a book with pretty photos. And, so, and I, was, I was like, no. And he said, you live in a delusional universe where <laughs> everyone you know is already, like, who writes books is already some sort of a celebrity because they're a celebrity chef or something. But that's not what makes a good book. What makes a good book is a unique premise that's really strong, and that's what this is. So you need to go do this. And, and he said, you need to go teach it and get people, like, and get your curriculum worked out and then turn that into a book proposal and make a book out of it. And so I was like, okay. So I went and I did that. And it took me about, from that point, it took about three years. I just kept teaching the class over and over again, seeing how people responded, what worked for them, what didn't work. And I started making these little like drawings for the classes like to illustrate points and I was like oh maybe illustrations like maybe charts would work and I was stalking this great illustrator Wendy McNaughton I just loved her stuff I thought she was so funny and she does these great infographics there was this hilarious one that was um should I check my email It was a flow chart and all of the bubbles led to no like (laughs) (laughs) but there were like really funny stuff inside and so um I was like, oh, so then I found Wendy McNaughton's email address and I wrote her a crazy email and I was like, I'm your number one fan. I'm stalking you, <laughs> and I was like, you. Are, I was like, will you please illustrate my book? And so she met up with me and she said she would. And so I also knew like everything I wanted to do was in opposition to what a cookbook traditionally is there's not uh you know 10 chapters with recipes there's not it's just just it's organized in a totally different way and I knew that if I had to convince a publisher to let me do it my way I had to show them instead of like promise them so I took over a year to make the proposal what it was and and Wendy fully illustrated it because I also knew they'd be opposed to that since food photos are such a strong like selling point and so Wendy and I, yeah, we worked on it for over a year and then we had a friend who's a book designer design it and then we sent it out and everyone was so excited. So then we got to make the book. Yeah.
3: I mean, it's very clear from the book. I'm going to show a couple of the charts just for,
0: for people. Uh, there's foldouts as well.
3: There's foldouts, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm going to show a couple of the so foldouts. So... I don't have any. Are you jealous? Yeah, I'm yeah. jealous. So I'm there's jealous. a lot of charts explaining where where food originates, where you would find different things, a lot of flow things and it's... Seriously accessible. Like you you can... If you don't fancy reading everything, then you can, you can just get work. it in a, in a short kind of diagram of everything. But read everything. <laughs> you sh- but really, you should read everything. And I even... To be honest, this is one of the first talks where quite a few of our chefs have come because we've been talking about what we've been reading. I also sent them a picture of one of the things because we make bread and there's a whole chapter about doughs and salt and breaking and stuff like that. So I took a picture of it. Sent it. We have WhatsApp groups. Everything in Honey and Co works with WhatsApp groups. So there's a little picture of you talking about bread and salt and reactions. And I think what is good about it is this applies to people that cook a lot, but also to people that have never cooked before. Because basically it's going to give them a bit of that... Confidence. Yes. Yeah. So how if you approach, if someone approaches you, a young kid, it's never cooked before,
0: where do you start with them? Ooh. this. I feel like victories are really important because you have to build confidence and also practice is really important. So for little, I mean, like the, like somebody who doesn't know anything, I would say, let's make a salad dressing together and taste our way there. So you don't feel like you have to measure everything because then you understand, oh, like, And they'll say, I don't know if what what tastes good, what something, you know, that's another whole thing. Let me take a step back. A lot of times people say, I don't know what I'm tasting for when I'm tasting or how do I know when it's right or what's good? You know, and I'm like, well, you already know what's good because you already have your favorite foods that you crave. You know, when you go eat pizza somewhere and it's really good or tacos or lasagna or whatever. Or, you know, when you go get a falafel when you're like, bam that needs some yogurt and harissa and it needs a little bit more pickles. And so all I'm doing with these words is putting labels on the things that you already know. When you're putting yogurt and harissa and pickles, you're putting salt and fat and acid because that thing is maybe a little bit dry and it needs the creaminess of fat or maybe it's a little bit undersalted and it needs the salt from the pickles and the, you know, harissa or whatever. So All I'm doing is helping you get the framework to understand what you already know. And part of the thing of why this is so universal is because it's human. You know, humans are, we have evolved to crave salt because we need it for our bodies to function and we can't produce it. And same with fat. There are certain fats we need and we don't produce. And so we need them to function. So we crave the creaminess of fatty things, you know, and texturally like, um, The contrasts of texture are what make food really exciting to eat when you have something flaky next to something creamy, when you eat pie with ice cream, you know, or macaroni and cheese that's creamy and soft and has something crispy, the breadcrumbs on top. So when you get textural contrasts, that's something that we actually just, every human likes that. That's fundamental, you know, and acid, this is one of the best factoids I learned was when you eat something acidic, your mouth fills with water because your teeth will corrode if the acid stays in your in your mouth for too long so the saliva neutralizes the acid in your mouth so when they say something is mouthwatering it it's because it's acidic so like lemonade if you just think about lemonade your mouth will start to fill with water. You don't actually even need to eat it. So this idea, like, of something being balanced in acid, sure, we all exist on a spectrum. Maybe, like, for me, I like, I have a very acidic palate or I have a particularly salty palate. So, like, but but it's on a spectrum. So, like, your seasoning, when you get something right, it's not, probably not that far away from where, what mine is. And so, um... If I can help you get your salad dressing kind of close to the point and we can and you'll say, well, I don't even know what I'm tasting for when I just have a spoonful of salad dressing. I'll say, "Okay, well, let's dip a lettuce in it, you know, a lettuce leaf or a crouton. And so we feel our way and we see our way together. I think that's how I build A sort of confidence in people is which is why in my classes I think it's really important for everybody to cook and it's also important for me to purposely make mistakes and purposely ruin stuff and show them how to fix it because then you see, oh, it's just a mistake, like there's always a way back from that or a way around that. And, um, yeah, and I also make everybody taste every step of the way so you understand because a lot of times, especially I'm sure you know this, like when you're making, I don't know. When i for me, it's an example I use is like potato salad or egg salad or Caesar salad, anything that has like 90 ingredients and you're mixing and tinkering, tinkering, tinkering. There's a point where, like, I'm like, by the end, you should be so sick of it that you don't actually want to eat it anymore. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And so but there's a way where like a lot of times you'll get to a point and a lot of people will be like, oh, that's good. That's good enough. And I'm like, yeah, I've been to a lot of restaurants where I've had good enough. But what if we take it further? What if we push it more? You know, what will that be? So I don't it's just I just want to show them what it can be so that then they can get it. But yeah, I think also roasting vegetables. I mean, my friend, I was a, at my, my friend Tamar Adler's book event the other day and someone said like, what's the most basically a similar question? And she had the best answer. She said, if I could teach you how to make vegetables taste good, I think that's really powerful thing to do because people go to restaurants and they order, you know, you go to here or you go to Otolenghi or something and you get like a beautiful veg. You're like, oh, this roasted vegetable thing with all these sauces and it's so good and you think, well, I could never make that. Like, that's so complicated. But it's not complicated and there's really just a few steps to get there. So if you can get the confidence to do that, maybe you'll eat more vegetables, which we all need that. So yeah.
1: (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: What's next for you? What are you going to do? Ooh, um, I'm going to rest next. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the book is being um, turned into a show, into a series. Oh, wow. So, uh, which we're done filming and like that will be out later this year, which I'm really excited That's about. amazing. Yeah. So, um... I'm exhausted. Like I basically <laughs> went straight from the like promoting the book into this doing this series. So I haven't had a break in like 150 years. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. so I need a break, and then um and then I'll. Fa- I don't know. You know, I just don't know yet. I'm tired. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone wants to know what's next. And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to keep like making good food and helping people cook and
3: and then the the fourth chapter of the book is heat, and mm-hmm. this is I find. So interesting because there's hardly ever any conversation about heat. I think there is about the salt and fat and acid. This kind of comes and goes, and there's a lot of discussion, but in books and like you say, a lot of the way to get flavor out of a vegetable is to roast the shit out of it. Basically. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk a bit about heat. What What's your favorite cooking method? First I of all?
0: what?
3: I know. Probably oh, roasting. I did say it's an easy I question. do think
0: I, I. Well, oh god, this is a hard one. Um, my. I love cooking, Oh man, I said roasting first, but I actually think I like cooking over fire the best because I love, first of all, like I was really scared. You know, the idea of building a fire, if you've never, I don't know, maybe I I know I grew up in a house that had a gas fireplace, so we didn't even build the fire in the fireplace. We just turned the switch on. So I probably had never built a fire before I had to do it at work. So the idea that I had to learn an entire language of fire and understand the life cycle of a fire. And it took a real and then, you know, what is this? Like you put a stake over a fire. Like, how do you even know when to turn? Like, it was seemed so mysterious. And um, I remember one lesson that really taught me sort of this incredible thing that i've it's once i learned this thing i learned about paella i had to make a paella over the fire they make paella over the fire in the restaurant i don't know shape like a few times a year and one time it became my turn and i was like how am i going to do this like i don't understand you don't get to stir the rice i mean because you don't want to stir it because you want to get that beautiful crust on the bottom but if it's too hot it'll burn before the other stuff and ah, this whole thing and the chef took me aside and he's like listen you got to take a chill pill First, like, this is the deal is the paella evolved with the fire. And the whole idea of it is that you cook a a paella cooks over a fire. You put it on the fire at the hottest point and then you let the fire die. You don't actually have to do anything to it. And fires take 45 minutes to die. Like that's every cook knows like you build a fire and like it, it takes 45 minutes to get to the point where it's like you have coals. I mean, depending on what kind of wood you have, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 50 minutes. But like in general, it takes 45 minutes. And so he's like that. What? And so he. that was basically all he told me. He's like, you don't really have to do anything. And then as I watched it cook and over the years, as I thought about it, I was like, oh, This is not that different than Persian rice or any braise or any stew or anything where what's the first thing you do is you brown the thing and then you let it cook through over gentle heat. So... It goes on over the highest point and then you turn it down. How many dishes have I made like that? You know, lasagna bolognese, short ribs, like even Persian rice, you do the same thing where like once it's blanched, you put it in the pot and you sizzle it to get the crust and then you turn it down and let it steam through. And so once I started to understand like a fire has a life cycle and an arc and when you're adding fuel, you're like extending that arc. And when you're not adding fuel, you're letting that go down and understanding like in a way that's the same as turning down an oven die a stove dial or an oven dial. Then I felt like I finally had facility with this thing. And then um, I have a friend who has this beautiful, like rugged, very rustic, extremely rustic farm (laughs) in upstate New York, where she bought this incredible farm and has been slowly rebuilding it. But she's put all of her energy into like having sheep and like flower beds and stuff. And none of her energy has been in the house and redoing the house. And so there's no kitchen because when they moved in, like the last person who had lived there was 10 years ago and they'd torn out the kitchen because the gas oven was about to explode. So throughout the entire year, anytime she's cooking, she makes everything either over a microwave or a gas grill that she has, even though it's upstate New York and there's sometimes like... Snow, Snow up to your neck, you know? <laughs> I'm like, you guys are tough. So when I go there, I want to cook for everyone. We have parties and stuff. So over the years, I've built this whole outdoor kitchen. just And, like, they don't have a ton of money, so I've built it with, like, cinder blocks from the hardware store, digging holes so we can cook underground. Various, Like, she has this old flower... Um, trellis and i'll hang chickens from it and cook over the fire and then the dying coals will roast stuff so for me it's been another way to like gain facility with this thing and how one year i went and i made a whole thanksgiving over the fire which i was so proud of because i figured out how to build an oven out of just garbage in the (laughs) which i was like if i make this hot enough underneath and i use a garb garden pail that i line with aluminum foil the aluminum foil can reflect the flame and brown the top of the buns, and I can cook a pie, and, and it worked. I couldn't believe it worked because <laughs> I kept thinking, like, what is an oven? An oven is just something with like it's a metal box that heat reflects off of to brown the top of the stuff, and you know. So it was just a, I don't know. I mean, I've ruined so much stuff on the way to success, like, <laughs> and like, and I think everyone does, right? Like, yeah. it's patience and practice, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I've, and th- it gives me confidence because then I'm like, oh, I can do this. Guys, does anyone have questions they would like to ask? So wait, we have to talk about feta cheese too. Okay, okay. Yeah. We have to
3: argue about yeah. feta cheese apparently.
0: Or maybe sure. not argue, maybe we'll agree and then we can just tell my friend that she's wrong. <gasps> Perfect.
3: <Yeah. laughs> what is the argument? I don't well, know so yet. I was just told okay. before the Yes, start the Should, Okay, I'll start with
0: feta cheese. Okay. I have very strong feelings about feta cheese. <laughs> I assume you do too. What is your favorite? Depends what I'm doing with it. Oh, tell me more.
3: Because (laughs) I do a lot of baking. Uh Uh-huh. Like sweet baking. Oh. And then I'll tend to use something quite creamy. Like a Danish feta. Yeah. Okay. Where where what it does is break down Danish into Greek style cheese yes because it's not As allowed to be called feta voice. oh a, a Danish, really yes Greek Danish style. Greek
0: style cheese yes okay. or salad cheese which is called. so creamy it's almost like cream cheese like yes, it's so
3: creamy but it's got all that salt yes so when you're doing like I use it in cakes and stuff like that because it adds a saltiness but a cream cheese saltiness so I I would prefer it for that but if I'm doing finishing off salads then a sheep's feta me too, is obviously. like <laughs> worth, you know, yeah. The, yeah. the best flavor and personally I prefer in brine rather than the dry but me That's too. my
0: personal kind of. Why would anyone want a f- dry fat I don't, I don't know. know. They're so
3: dry. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> it's like eating yeah.
0: chalk. No? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, not my oh, favorite. That was an argument.
0: No, no. Well, but, but, so what's the <laughs>
3: argument? No, <but laughs> part? What about you? Yeah, I agree with you. 100%. No, but what about you? Well, no, no. I'm.
0: What about you? Yeah, of course. I he agree just agree. likes cheese. Yeah. Well, so I'm staying with my friends who live. Um, near like bayswater road near all the arab stores and stuff so we went to the lebanese store and she bought the feta, and she like, sp- and there's like nine kinds you know greek israeli french da 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 and she's like i'll have the danish and i was like the danish so the Dan, if you're gonna have just one at your house why on earth would you not get the one that's like nice and tangy so you can add salt and fat and acid so no he no, no he- <laughs> So, to me, I mean, like, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just, to me, I don't, and like, yeah, and so, (laughs) I also can go for a Bulgarian, Bulgarians, they're really salty, nice and tangy, but the Danish to me has no, it's basically cream cheese, like, there's no, almost no tang to it. But when you're baking. Yeah, with your baking, I can go with that, I can go, yeah, but as your, as your primary feta, (laughs) not okay. Cream cheese is great, but it's not feta. They so serve different easy. purposes. If you're trying to sell it to me as an Iranian thing to eat with your t- tea for breakfast, Gina? don't bring me Gina, Danish feta. No, in the Iranian
1: restaurant. Gina, you know what,
0: what in, feta? Uh,
3: Gina is from Greece, so she uh-oh. should have, like... I'm only only well, she... Greek. Only. <laughs> she, but she has to say that. <laughs> Gina's one of our sous so she has to say only Greek. There's no like, you know. <laughs>
0: I love you. I love you. <laughs> well, it's funny because my friend was like, Do you want to come to Greece this summer? And I was like, Not if I have to eat Greek feta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. I'm actually just kidding. I bet it's really good. I just wanted to Wow. <laughs> you know, well, that's it. She's not, she's not going to
3: be allowed into Greece ever. <laughs> Okay, other questions. Don't be shy, guys. What, yes. wait,
0: what, I didn't get to
3: ask my oh. oh, jeez. No, oh, okay. yes. You, yeah, you work yeah. here. You don't need to. Yes. Oh, Oh, well, wait, I'm going to repeat. Oh, this. yes, of course. The lovely lady was wondering about
0: sugar and sweetness in this book and where it fits in. It's funny because when we sent a copy to Otolenghi, he was like, this is all really good, Samin, but where's the sugar? Like, because he's known for adding, like, a little pomegranate molasses, a little sweet to everything. And to me, I do think, like, absolutely... you know Persian cooking is very it's all about balance and so for everything you know creamy there needs to be something crunchy and for something salty there should be something sour and often there's something sweet on the plate as well so I do like savory food that has a little sweetness but there's a couple reasons why sweet's not the main, uh, not one of the main elements. One is I already am championing salt and fat. So like the <laughs> dietary people are going to come after me. Number and number two is to me, these are the elements that make, that are universal to everything that we cook. And I don't believe that every single thing should have sweetness. And I really champion like knowing your ingredients and understanding how to use the natural sugars and really work with the natural sugars in food and how to learn how to shop for better. So there are all these crazy things I've learned just throughout the years of being an insane person. And so like gardening, um, one of my friends, I, I grow sometimes a little bit of spinach in the yard or whatever. And one of my friends came over and she's like, did you know that if a frost is coming. A plant like spinach can sense that. And so they'll send all of their natural sugars to the extremities, which in a spinach plant is the leaf, to um, lower the freezing point so that frost the like, plant won't freeze over. So if you harvest spinach or any green vegetable right before a frost, it'll, it's the sweetest it ever is. That's why carrots are sweetest in the winter. So cold, cold makes sweetness. Freshness is sweetness. Things like corn and potatoes are the sweetest the moment they're harvested. And immediately those, and peas also, and those sugars immediately start becoming starches as, as time passes. And for potatoes, that takes a whole year, which is why new potatoes are really sweet. And we eat them roasted. And then the starchier potatoes toward the end of a year of storage are what make really great chips and fries and stuff like that because they're super starchy and they won't burn. You rinse off the starch and they fry really evenly. So it's, it's kind of like as a cook, I feel like it's our responsibility to get to know our ingredients so that we can do things like caramelize and brown ingredients and use the Maillard reaction and get like things brown, browning. When anything browns, Like a million new—not not not a million—don't quote me, scientists. Many new (laughs) (laughs) aromatic molecules and compounds form in there that create this entire like um, spectrum of flavors that wasn't present before. So the difference, and you can think of the difference, just in like white sugar versus caramelizing that sugar. White sugar is purely sweet, but caramel made with the same amount of sugar is like. Bitter and sour and sweet and has notes of like nuttiness and all these different things. And that same thing happens when you caramelize your cauliflower. So if you can learn to like go to the farmers market and buy the freshest cauliflower, it will already be sweeter. And then you take it home and you roast the shit out of it, as my friend <laughs> says. <laughs> I apologize for my language. No, it's awesome. <laughs> then you like doubled that sweetness. So there's a way where. I, I feel like that's pretty important. And then often you know, I did write about it also. I think sugar and acid work together really beautifully. And so that's one of the and, and sugar and salt and sugar and sugar and everything. So, it, I mean, it pops up in the chapters, but to me, it's not, you know, like you can have a perfectly satisfying salad or greens or chicken or whatever without sugar and still it can be good. So to me, it wasn't core. Does that make sense? It's a Mario question.
3: Uh, That that was pretty much the question. I I just want to say about this, I love the bit in the book about the oranges. Yes, isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It's so
0: crazy. So that's like, that was one of my things, was always like, recipes make me insane. Because like, it might say, use three three a (laughs) cup of peas or two lemons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like, I've always been like, a pea is not a pea is not a pea, because even if I go to the farmer's market and I buy a pound yeah, of peas, I'm gonna get there. <laughs> <laughs> the sugars in those peas are changing. So like if I cook half of them today, it, and I go back to cook the other half tomorrow in the same way, it won't taste the same. And so, the, I, and I was like, how can I get proof of this for people? So because I was like, you need to taste me writing a recipe is just the beginning, but I'm not there in the kitchen with you. So you need to taste and or John McPhee, who is one of my favorite writers and somebody who I like isn't one of my idols. He's one of he basically is the father of modern um, Journalist, long form journalism in the States. And he writes, he's written for like over 30 or 40 years for the New Yorker. He is an extraordinary writer, read everything by him. One of his first books was about, was called Oranges. And he just went on this long deep dive of like the history of oranges and how oranges are turned into juice. And there's this beautiful section where he talks about visiting um, various orange orchards around the world, and and he learned like oranges grown on the equator are sweeter than oranges grown farther from the equator. Oranges on the like I think north side of the tree are sweeter than the oranges on the south side of the tree. On even on a particular branch, they're sweeter and less sweet oranges, and and within an orange, this um, I think it's that the bottom. I can't remember the blossom end maybe is sweeter than the other end. So orange pickers will just cut an orange in half and only eat the sweet half and don't even bother eating the other half because they have endless oranges there before them. So I was like, this is perfect because now I can like prove my point through the great John McPhee. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's just um, extraordinary because there's no substitute for tasting. You know, like I can test a recipe a thousand times and it'll be different a little bit every time I do it. And then if I send it to you to taste across a test across the world, of course it will be different. You have different ingredients. And so the selling the promise that a recipe is foolproof, I don't know. I think that's a little bit <laughs> disingenuous. That's it's it, guys. I different. answered all the questions. No, oh, you've yeah. got to have
3: some questions. If not, I'm gonna continue asking questions. I'm just trying to no give no you goodies. some time.
0: How are you guys so polite and is it because you're British? What's the deal? Yeah, no, oh, there we go. Okay. Good one. Yeah, I mean I think it's my I like if you come to my house, which whatever, you can come to my house. We'll have only 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 French feta and maybe Bulgarian, no Greek. And <laughs> and if you open that it, it's like 1 million Italian ingredients. So like that's sometimes so there's always parmesan at my house, always beautiful olive oil. It's my like comfort zone. You know, it's a lot faster than cooking any Persian food certainly. And so even though, like, my most comforting foods to eat are Persian food, like, it's not easy to make Iranian food. My grandmother always used to say, I think Iranian food was invented to keep women in the kitchen. Yes. You know, like, yeah. But uh, there's a
3: huge contrast between Iranian and Italian with the amount of acidity. Oh, totally. And the the fresh herbs and the Italian kind of more tomatoey, olive oily. It's such a different...
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't always go straight for the tomatoes, but it's just that kind of, like, very basic, like, let's put some olive Yeah, the olive oil and vinegar, and um, it's just so much quicker, honestly. I'm lazy. I'm pretty lazy, like, (laughs) that's really what it is. So, and it is, I, I finally, so I left Italy in 2004, and I didn't get to go back until last year. And so it was an amazing reunion. It was a great reunion tour. And I ate so much Parmesan. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, and sometimes when I'm, I'm, I've been feeling pretty down on myself lately. I'm just exhausted and I don't feel like I have, I just feel very uninspired. Like everything I cook tastes the same and I don't, can't come up with new ideas for my column. Every time I return in a column, I'm like, there's a cup of Parmesan. and There's just Parmesan everywhere. And lately, I'm like, maybe I just have to lean into the Parmesan thing. Like, Parmesan's the perfect food. It's, like, <laughs> hits all of your, the taste buds in your mouth. It's so delicious. It makes everything better. Like, maybe it's okay. But yeah. there's a weird thing. <laughs> as
3: a cook. At some stage, you do... Give up on your own food. Yeah. Because everything you cook tastes the same Yeah, too.
0: totally. I mean, a part of it is, like, because I have a thing full of, a cabinet full of olive oil, right? Like, those ingredients are the things that define the taste of your cooking. Start, and so, for us, this was
3: it. Uh, like, we started doing this because it meant we had to open a book yeah. and actually cook from that book, and we create food that isn't ours. I love
0: that. So do that. I need to do that. <laughs> Thank you. I loved your book. And Thank you.
1: And one of the things that was really different and exciting about the book to me was you were teaching how to develop palate which I thought was particularly unique to your book. And I was interested because very clearly you have a very... Um,
0: Opinionated palate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that comes across. You have a very, you know, um, sophisticated, precise,
1: good palette. But do you think that is something that you, because of your background and the food you grew up with, you had naturally or do you think that's something that really we can learn to develop?
0: I definitely think, so the question is about a palate and can we develop a palate or do you, are you born with one? I was not born with a palate. My mom um, is a great cook but she doesn't use very much salt um, and she like didn't let us really eat sugar. There were just, she had a lot of like hippie beliefs about certain things and so by the time I came to Chez Nice. My mind every day was being blown by the things I was eating because they were the best whatever I'd ever had. But I didn't know why. And it really was mind-blowing for me to see. I think seeing how much of olive oil or how much salt or how deeply brown they took things. Um, I had to see it to piece together everything. And that constant tasting 24 hours a day, taste and talk about it, taste and talk about it, or even taste and think about it. That was what trained me. And um, sometimes I still think we always I mean, there are different cooks, I think, who are like, is that guy making up that he can taste whatever in whatever? You know, <laughs> which is not that... The wine world is always like that, right? Wine people talking about the... Um, I still don't really know how to talk about wine, but I, I do... I just know what I like and I know what I don't like and when something is good and when something's not bad. So I think anybody... if Honestly, I feel like if I can do it, anyone can do it. I think you just have to... And the other thing is, I think you already know. I think you just need to develop, like, the reference points in your mouth so that you know what your taste tasting. I mean, you already know, right? Like, every time... It's true. If
3: you eat something delicious, you know it's delicious. There is no doubt about it. Yeah, And you'll want to eat that again and again. And it's having the faith that everything you can cook cook at home can can taste like that. That's that's where people get it wrong. They think, oh, this restaurant, they make amazing food. Why can my food never taste like that? It can. Restaurants don't do anything crazy. All they do is season it, cook it right, right temperature, good ingredients, you get amazing food. And this is what I think your book really portrays is that if you kind of just invest in that aspect, that your dinner can be a delicious dinner every night. It doesn't have to be bland, doesn't have to yeah. just be, you know, pasta that you put in water that didn't have enough salt or enough water, that you overcooked it or that you didn't season it when it was hot. And all of these things can make
0: every dinner that you have you know, a pleasure rather than... Totally. I mean, I have a friend who's always sends me funny ideas for what she thinks my next book should be. And today she sent, I think it should be um, taking, like when you buy food from a, you know, prepared food from a shop and you bring it home and you need to eat it for dinner, but it's not just right, so you need to tinker with it to make it right. She was like, I think you should write a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> you would be so ill oh, no. if you buy food from, that's ready from a shop, you're gonna, yeah. And so, but I, I do think there's a thing where like, I'm obsessed with that tinkering. Like I do it on the airplane with the whatever they give me, you know, I do it at the, like I've been traveling a lot. So I do it at the, you know, just the crappy Mexican food place where I like combine the different salsas and put the extra lime juice. Like to me, I, I, I think I'm because I know how good things can taste I'm always a little bit let down if I don't like reach the full potential. So and <laughs> I'm just insane. And I'm a perfectionist. And also when I first started cooking, they told me, they said, you won't know anything until you've been doing this for 10 years. And that was before like Malcolm Gladwell had written the 10,000 hour thing. But they're just like, it doesn't become part of your body till you've been doing it for 10 years. And it was true. It was like something clicked at 10 years. And which is a hard thing to tell people who are home cooks. I don't want to tell you that you won't know anything for 10 years of doing it eight hours a day or 12 or 15, as it may be. But, um, but I think the message in there is practice. And I think people expect, oh, it's, if I make this recipe and it's bad the first time, something's wrong with me or something's wrong with the recipe. No, you just got to do it again. Like, keep going, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good. Are you hungry, guys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All
3: right, so Julia cooked today. Julia's oh, our chef. Well, she's not here, I'm afraid, because so oh. she's at a function. So she cooked for oh, you and okay. then went to a function. Oh, Because Ethan and I were doing a shoot with lovely Patsy today. Um, so we have fried chicken and akima di rapa. I can't Yummies. pronounce it. Yes, yeah. Is that how you
0: pronounce it? Chima. 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 Which you guys call what? Turnip tops here? Broccoli top? What do you I call it? Yeah. Yeah. Turnip tops? tops.
3: Yeah. yeah. With ricotta salata. And then... It's my pan- favorite
0: green. I love it so much. So bitter. So really?
3: Bitter. It's so bitter. I i,
0: I struggled with the bitterness. Oh, I'm a deeply bitter
3: person. So. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> a, deeply, <laughs> a deeply bitter
1: person. Uh, yeah. And then we...
3: You have four, four versions of panzanella, which is my favorite kind of salad anyway. So she has a winter, an uh, autumn, a summer, and a spring. We're obviously having the spring, even though I really wanted the autumn one, because it's got brown butter and... Anyway, but we're having the spring one, because it is spring. So asparagus and breadcrumbs and... <laughs> <and time>. um,
1: <laughs> or Danish salad cheese That's <laughs> so. all Danish salaries. <laughs> uh, uh, easily required
3: to see. Just <laughs> let me say thank you, uh, everybody. Uh, let's thank Samin for coming and for Yay. being so engaging. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank
1: you
3: for coming. What you gonna do? to benefit the crowd. What you gonna do? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Honey and Clover. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. that will be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.uk, or follow us on our social media at honeyandco.uk. Guys, you're in for a treat, I think. I'm not, sure. I'm not really sure. I met someone like 10 minutes ago, but I can tell you it's going to be a, you know. High energy. <laughs> high energy talk.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.